This person has made a big impact on our life. Have really learned a lot from her. All right, somebody get me out of here. <laughs> no, we've had our own little counseling in this whole thing. This has been quite the counseling session. <laughs> I hope you've learned a lot. We've definitely benefited from this. <laughs> you see we. That? Did you see that? Yeah, uh, and I just said we. Love or work. Welcome to the Love Work Podcast. This is Jeff. And I'm Andre. Woo! We got a show coming at you today. Well, I think everybody was going to be getting ready for this because they read chapter nine. So they know what's coming. Would you consider this episode a little bit of foreplay? <laughs> I threw you for a loop on that I, one. I, yes. I You're don't, at a loss of words. I, <laughs> First time ever on the show. This is amazing. I don't know if it was foreplay as much as like firing me up. Like, oh. like getting me like very passionate about this. Good. This is great. I feel like we're going to have some amazing conversations after this. I don't know that we can have all the conversations that we need to have on the air. No, we're not going to. But chapter nine is all about sex. It's all about sex, baby. And we are talking about it today. Yes. So today we have Celeste Holbrook. She is a sexologist Hmm. and we learned all about that, but she's also an author and a speaker. And uh, you can find her at her website, which is drcelesteholbrook.com. It'll be all in our show notes, her information, but she does virtual consults and courses. And I promise you, after you're done listening to this podcast you are going to want to hit her up. It's going to be good. Yeah, it's I feel so like good I feel like this is an episode where you could send it to your partner. You could text it to your partner. And I'm not saying you could sext it, but it is a sex episode that you could text. It might be a sext. And I don't know. <laughs> it's somewhere in between. What's the qualifications? <laughs> text it to him. Say, listen to this, because it's going to create some amazing conversations. And... It's just, it was really good. I walked away very educated. I have like pages of notes over here. So I think a few things we could be listening for. Oh, are you going to take my... Th- yes! I literally wrote my three things, but I want to hear it. Go ahead. Okay. What well, would you I listen might for? take over a little bit. Go for it. So we talk about purity culture. And I think that's something that if any of you listening have had that experience, this is the episode for you. We talk about sex being a negotiation. Yeah, that was really interesting. This is really key. So different than any previous negotiations you've had about sex. I will say that. Okay. And then we talk about developing a sexual ethic. Mm -hmm. Super important for our kids. Yep. And we learned a new phrase called sexual resilience. Mm. I think all of those phrases listen, really hear it because We got educated today. There's only one thing I would add. Did I have all your three things? No. Oh. You had two of the three. Okay, what's your other one? Yahtzee. Oh my gosh. Here we go. Here we go with Celeste Holbrook for chapter nine, the sex chapter. All right, so you're the first person we've interviewed that calls themselves a sexologist. Now, I don't know. I'm curious, what's the difference between a sexologist and a sex therapist? Ah, what a good question. Um, A sexologist is essentially somebody who studies sex. So my PhD is in health education and my postgraduate work is in sexual behavior. And so my certification is sex educator, but I like the term sexologist too, because it kind of encompasses like just somebody who studies sexual behavior. 
just like a marine biologist. You add ologists on anything, a cosmetologist, you know, and, and it's the study of. So sexologist is somebody who just studies sex. A sex therapist has a degree, like a licensed social work degree or a um, is a psychologist who has a sex therapist certification. So it's a little bit different. So my work is more action-oriented, a little bit more than a sex therapist would be, and a little bit more behaviorally based. I'm essentially a behaviorist. And so that's kind of the difference. Our work can often look very similar and in ways it's very different. Okay. Yeah, well, I'm not trying to make light of the fact that you said yours is more action-oriented, <laughs> but... But, you but know, it, is. it is. It is. That's great. Mm-hmm. That's what we're talking about today, really, is a little bit of yeah. sexual action. Yeah, so there we go. Yeah. It's perfect. This is great. All right. Yeah. Well, we asked you to read our most, well, my most scary thing I've ever written, which is our chapter nine sex chapter. And I guess just first, like right off the bat, what did you think? And as a true sexologist, was there things that you were like, Ooh, uh, I kind of disagree or, Ooh, okay. That's some, that's okay. That's good learning. That's agreement. Like what was your feel when you read that? Well, first of all, all sex educators are providing safe spaces for people to talk about sex and you are doing that. Like you're an extension of a sex educator essentially because you're allowing a reader to think about their own sex life and to look at your story and to consider the ways that they agree or disagree or or whatever. And so, first of all, way to go <laughs> to bring sex to light because, uh, you know, the vast majority of people on this earth are having sex or want to be having sex. And so it is something that we need to talk about for sure. So first of all, thank you for providing a safe space for people to learn about and read about sex. One of the things that I love that you include is a nod to Esther Perel's book and the idea that responsibility is the biggest killer of arousal and eroticism. I think that's really important. And I think it's undertaught. And so when we have issues in sex, we often don't think about how contextual and environmental sex really is. So Mm. it's deeply impacted by the messages you got growing up, by your work environment, by the laundry sitting in the corner that you're thinking about instead of thinking about your clitoris. So sex is very contextual and responsibilities being the biggest pillar of arousal is a very important place to bring it up. And you talk about vulnerability and Brene Brown and all of that. I'm I'm just pleased. I, you did a great job. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. Because I was a little sweaty thinking about yeah, what I'm you sure. were going to say. No, only encouragement, only encouragement to give people places to think about sex more deeply. So yeah, good job. So tell me if I'm wrong, but it's my understanding that you maybe have a little bit of a similar story, maybe not as dramatic, but with the kind of growing up in purity culture, kind of during your teen years and things like that. Um, is that true? And what is your story in terms of that time? And how did that impact you? Yes. So I, I do have some similarities in your story. I grew up in small town Texas in a conservative community. My parents themselves aren't particularly conservative, but I have a personality of somebody who follows the rules. And so because of growing up in that church community, I followed the rules. And so I was taught that sex would be good if you waited until marriage. And so that's what I did. And my definition of sex at the time was penis and vagina. And so 
got married at the age of 26, got married in the morning. And my daddy always said, if you get married in the morning and the marriage doesn't work out, you haven't wasted the whole day. (laughs) And so (laughs) got married, had sex around one o'clock in the Texas afternoon in June, which was, you know, interesting. And it was terrible. (laughs) It was Mm -hmm. really awful. Um, I had an incredible amount of pain and I just was confused. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I kind of call it the prosperity gospel of sex. If you wait, it will be good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I like and, that. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't. Yeah. And it was painful. And I was working on a PhD and my husband was starting medical school. So we moved away from everything we knew. And we had a whole first year of marriage that was full of painful sexual experiences. Mm. And I remember feeling like I was a failure and that I must have not done something right. And I was failing my partner and I was angry at him every time he wanted to be intimate. And I felt a lot of shame around, you know, not living up to this expectation that I thought I was going to live up to. And so after the first year, I went to see an OB-GYN. He did a full examination and he said, Celeste, I don't see anything physically wrong. I think you just need to have some babies. <laughs> what? Which wow. I know. It's terrible advice because what I really needed is for somebody to say, hey, listen, I understand that you are feeling you know, frustrated, that you feel shame, that you feel all of these things. And here are psychological and behavioral things that you can do to help with those feelings. And so essentially, because I was working on a PhD in health behavior, I just started studying sex and I started studying sexual behavior. And I, this is why I'm so passionate about the work I did, that I do, because I truly believe sex education saved my relationship. Mm. I just didn't know a whole lot of stuff. And I needed to unwind from the negative messages I got growing up because my body had internalized the idea that sex is dangerous. You're going to go to hell. You're going to be unwanted. You're going to be unlovable if you do all this stuff before you're married. And your body doesn't have a timeline. So my body was still holding on to those messages even after I was married mm-hmm. and caused vaginismus, which is the like the closing of your vaginal canal mm-hmm. as a fear response, as a trauma response. And so understanding that and unwinding from those messages and giving myself better sex education made sex better for me and started my career. <laughs> so can I step back a little bit? You talked about that first yeah. year, how difficult it was for you and all these thoughts you had. I'm curious, was that a conversation you were having with your husband? Like, how did that transpire kind of relationally? Or was that something you were holding on to yourself? Probably uh, on the spectrum of uh, withholding. Because I you know, young, I don't, you know, I'm not introspective. I haven't been to therapy yet. I don't know how to communicate these things other than I don't want to have sex. If we're going to do anything, it has to be non-penetrative. And luckily we had explored a lot non of non-penetrative sex prior to marriage. So I think that too, that exploration was part of what helped us uh, Mm. navigate because my partner, who did not grow up in a church environment, was very amenable to like, oh, yeah, all of this, like understood sex more. Like, oh, yeah, all of this feels good. All of this can be, you know, filed away as sex for me. And so he's just kind of like, A, he's in the first year of medical school. So the poor guy is just like, 
tired anyway. <laughs> and B, like he just has a broader understanding of sex and is very like hopeful and supportive, but also has no idea what is going on with me either medically. So hmm. Yeah. I liked how you said like your original definition of sex was the penis and vagina thing. Uh Like how has that evolved? I mean, obviously, so because of your experience that it was so painful that evolved. But I also think probably a lot of the education around sex changed that as well. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. The education that we have typically around sex is reproductive education and not pleasure education. Mm. The reproduction education teaches like how to make babies, but 97% to 98% of the sex we have is for pleasure and connection, not to make babies. Mm. Mm -hmm. And so if we think about what feels good for clitoris owners and vulva owners, it's typically touching, grinding, rubbing on the outside, on the external parts of the genitalia. And so if we are creating definitions of sex based on why we have sex, which is mostly for pleasure and connection, then the definitions need to be a little bit more inclusive and broader. And so anything that brings pleasure and connection can be a definition of sex. And when we broaden the definition of sex beyond penis and vagina, we are being more inclusive to people who maybe have both have vulvas or both have penises. Exactly. It's not just a pleasure principle. It's a principle of justice as well, of broadening that definition of sex. I really love that. So let's go back a little bit to maybe your experience and then kind of breaking from those viewpoints and ideas of purity culture and kind of what that kind of ingrained in you. What would you think are like the top three lies that you believed as you look back you think to yourself wow I believed that Mm. well I think we've talked about one and that is that the definition of sex that sex is penis and vagina and so I think that was unhelpful and one of the things I let go of very quickly Mm. I also you know really believed that the idea that sex was going to be natural and sex isn't natural. It's biological. We're built for pleasure. Uh, many of us are built for reproduction. But sex and doing it in a way that feels good for us is a learned skill, mm. right? Just like it's biological to eat. You still have to learn how to cook that stuff. <laughs> right. In a way that to make it good. taste good. And yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I think that's where a lot of us get tripped up and it's where I got tripped up is like, I did the right things, right? Sex is supposed to be easy and natural and it is not for me. And so that's a lie that's told not only in purity culture, but outside of purity culture too, porn culture, media, like sex is easy, takes two seconds and everybody loves getting hammered, you know? No. Right. Yes. (laughs) So sex is not natural. It is biological, but it is a learned skill, right? And that's Mm. my whole job. It's helping people learn those skills. And then I think the idea that something that I very much learned from purity culture was that men were criminal and had quote unquote sexual needs that I was responsible for fulfilling. And we tell girls this in a multitude of ways, beginning with, you know, don't wear a skirt that's too short or whatever, because Mm -hmm. you 
are responsible for men's arousal. And in adulthood, that looks like I am responsible for his pleasure. I need to have sex or I feel obligated to have sex. So what starts as a message about your bra strap ends as a message of, I need to push through my non-arousal just to have sex because I'm responsible for his pleasure. Yeah. How'd you break out of that? Uh, Every day. (laughs) Still do. Same last, right? It's something that you manage. It's not something that you work over, like get through fully. Mm. And so one of the things that I do and one of the things that I encourage my clients to do is to really understand and talk to those earlier versions of you who come forward and get loud. Like maybe I hear an earlier version of me that says, oh, you need to have sex because your partner needs it, right? And so I just acknowledge, okay, that's an earlier version of me that's incorrect and not something that I need to listen to. And I can navigate and negotiate with my partner what will feel best for both of us. But I don't need to feel obligated. Mm. So I feel like there's probably a lot of people listening that can completely relate with your story, but yet they haven't found a new way. Mm-hmm. And they struggle talking about it. Like it ends up becoming whenever they've talked about it with their partner, it's a fight probably mm-hmm. or a disagreement or, you know, there, there's a lot of feelings that go along in that space. Yeah. Like just what's the path forward? I mean, I, I think, I think it's such a, hard conversation for people to get into together. If if you, there's so many levels of shame, so many levels of mm-hmm. disappointment, how do you begin that journey? Yeah, that's a beautiful question. So first, remember that you weren't given the skill sets probably to talk about sex. Even people who don't grow up in purity culture are typically not given skill sets to communicate and negotiate a sexual experience. So giving yourself some compassion can be helpful there. Like, yeah, this is hard and it's hard for most people. The second thing and something that I have every client do when they come into the practice is really take a look at what you want to feel in sex emotionally, not just what you want to do. Because we're taught to talk about sex in a very performative way. This is how you perform. This is Mm -hmm. what you do. But all of our behaviors, we do them because we want to feel something. I pet my dog because I want to feel calm. I ride my bike because I want to feel free. But in sex, sometimes we miss out on the idea that we're doing this because we want to experience something emotionally, right? I want to be restrained because I have decision fatigue and I don't want to make the decisions, right? There are lots of reasons in which we get into a sexual experience, but they're all based on what we want to feel. So the first thing I have clients do is they take a minute and they write down on a piece of paper, and I would encourage your listeners to do this. My dream sexual experience would feel like, and then just write, what do you want to feel? Erotic, uh, pleasured, desired, loss of control, dominated, submitted, whatever, submissive, whatever it is. Understand what you want to feel and then look at each other's words and find some common ground there. Oh, you wrote down adventurous and I wrote down fun. It looks like we are more on the same page than we thought because all of our arguments about what we do or don't do, like how much sex we are or are not having instead of how we are feeling or not feeling. Hmm. And so that's a really nice level set. And then you can build behaviors underneath that. But once you understand how your partner wants to feel then you can start having more productive conversations of what can we negotiate together 
in order to help each other feel that way. I love that. That is very, very true. I think culture tells us so much behavior things, you know? And you're right. It's like we don't get to the underneath and to the why and to the feelings underneath. Hang on. uh, Before we move on past this, I think this is really good. When you said, and then we can negotiate that. Mm -hmm. Like, Mm -hmm. can you unpack that a little bit? Because most of the negotiations that I talk about related to sex with men are about quantity or like it's it's not around negotiating feelings, giving her mm-hmm. words, right? Like play that out further for us. Yeah, great question, Jeff. So every couple, every partnership, every two lovers have to negotiate. Like sex is at its core a negotiation. It comes from two individual people with different needs, wants, and desires. Two different people who probably don't all the time want to have sex the same way, in the same time, the same amount of frequency, with the same amount of arousal, right? Sex is always a negotiation. Always, always. And it should be. And so when we're negotiating what we do in sex, what you need, what I need, it is a deeper conversation than frequency because we're, we're kind of taught that like frequency fixes everything and it doesn't. A whole bunch of bad sex doesn't help your relationship. Hmm. It probably breeds resentment because probably a whole bunch of bad sex means somebody's having sex when they don't want to. So frequency is secondary to quality, in my opinion. And if you work on helping everybody feel the way they want to feel, a lot of times frequency resolves itself. So negotiating sex means looking at like, what do you need? What do you need to feel? What do we need to unpack? What do we need to deconstruct? What messages are going on that impede your sense of pleasure? You just asked more questions than I could write fast. So I'm going to have to re-listen to that. (laughs) But I have to keep going just for right now. Yeah. Well, I love a note taker. I love a good student. So good job, y'all. <laughs> um, so yeah, asking all of those questions is the work, right? So sex is a negotiation that you do over and over and over and over again with the same person, right? As because now I have an off me bad, or now you're go you've lost your brother and you're going through grief, or now we've had little babies and they are potato sacks that take all of our mental energy, right? So sex is always going to be a negotiation. And the better that you can get at negotiating sex, the more sexual resilience you develop. And sexual resilience is one of the number one indicators that you will have a great sex life over the course of time. And defining sexual resilience means for you, like sex over a long period of time? Is that what you mean? Like the different spectrum? How did you define that? Yeah. So I define sexual resilience as the ability to sexually pivot to something that works for both of us, like this ability to negotiate. Wow. I mean, I don't feel like I've heard this much. I can relate with it. We've been married for almost 20 years now. Yeah. And we've had to do a lot of pivots. Yeah. You're, I feel yes. like you're giving words to our life, but I haven't heard these terms. I'm so glad because often people are doing these things like y'all and they don't really even realize that this is like a beautiful part of their relationship. In fact, a lot of people feel shame about having to negotiate because of the lie that is easy and natural. And so, yeah, we have a good sex life, but we really have to work at it. Good. <laughs> you know? I feel like as I've talked with friends about this, negotiation honestly comes out as he wants this. And so 
we figured out a way for him to be happy. Right, which goes back to the whole men's sexual needs as being the priority. For Uh sure, for sure. Patriarchy. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to, I'm I'm trying, I'm focusing on the new terms she's teaching us versus (laughs) the old terms we're trying to get past. Right. It is a long history of like the people who had the power to write words that we all read about sex were white and had a penis. And so this is the idea that women have low libido and men have normal libido when in fact, if the people who had the power to write the words that we read about sex were had vulvas, we'd probably be talking a lot about how do we lower men's extreme high libido, right? <laughs> yes, it would be a whole different conversation. And neither of them productive. Yeah, go yes. ahead. Oh, I mean, wow. and then let's just talk about women's health and how there is such a lack in that, whereas uh-huh. everything that we do for sexual health is really revolved around men, making sure they can still have erections, making sure they can still do all that. And then there's like nothing in the women's health side, you know? Yeah. I can go all yeah. day. I can go I, all day, Celeste. So Celeste, if we went backwards okay. in time though, and, and I think this is something that Andre and I are talking a lot right now about is uh-huh. to think about how we're educating our kids in mm. a different way. Because there's like spectrums. Like I don't want, I mean, if I'm being vulnerable, like I don't want to tell my kids, oh, they should. It's a sexual revolution. You should do whatever, whenever, what you know, like that's one far extreme. And then the other far extreme was like, no, you should never do anything with anyone until you get married. You know, like, mm-hmm. I think we're trying to figure out how to talk about this stuff with our kids, be open, honest and vulnerable. And what, what does that look like? Mm. I think something that's helpful and difficult to hear is that sex like any other decision your kids eventually make, is not determined by you. But you can give them information that helps them make the healthiest choices for them. And so we often get into this idea that sex is binary. Either you don't do it at all or like this, you know, this idea that we would ever tell our our kids that anything goes, which we wouldn't. Even in a sexual revolution, we misunderstand the sexual revolution to think that like anything is permissible, but we're actually saying, here are the tools, here's the information to help you make the healthiest choices for you. It's not, you know, it's not anything goes, it's let's help you explore and help you figure out what goes for you. So like developing a sexual ethic, understanding that that the choices you make sexually come from three different ways, which is your value system, sometimes informed by religion, sometimes not, your sex education, how much you know about sex, and your intuition, like, you know, this feels good to me. And so if you're checking boxes in all three, and I'll give you an example, say my value system is that I want to be monogamous, my sex education, it tells me that I want to have sex that's consensual, that's safe, that's not manipulative, and that's pleasurable, which is you know, definitely in your sexual ethic. And my intuition says, you know, I'm drawn or attracted to this person. Say, say I'm getting into a date situation and I've been dating this person for a while. We feel monogamous. I know how to keep myself from getting STIs or STDs and pregnant, but I'm, my intuition is just not feeling it. And so it's going to be a no, you know? So this is a way in which we can help our kids develop systems for making choices that are healthy for them. 
And what happens in purity culture is we dumped all of this information, all of the things we knew about sex was in an, an, a value system bucket that was heavily dependent on religion. And then we didn't give them anything in the other buckets. We didn't give them any sex education. And we told them actively not to listen to your intuition. And that provides really unsafe circumstances for kids. It does not allow them or empower them to make decisions that are healthy for them. Yeah. So that's the beginning is a sexual ethic. I love that. I think that's something that is so true about how we put it all into that one category. And oh my God, I'm, it's like blowing my mind here. But I think now it's like I think about when I'm talking to kids, like my kids especially, just about their intuition. Like, how did you feel in your body when that happened? How did you, mm-hmm. you know, did you feel unsafe? You know, and I think about situations that I'm telling them more in a safety scenario kind of, you know, mm-hmm. where it's mm-hmm. like, okay, if you're at somebody's house and things are happening that you don't like and you feel unsafe, what do you do? You know, and how do you, Mm -hmm. how do you talk to mom and how do you figure this out? So I'm talking about these things in that scenario. And we do, we want our kids to like know that and feel that and then be able to make wise decisions, right? At a party with drinking, with drugs, with all these other situations, but then we don't talk about it with sex, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think Mm -hmm. that's so, so valuable. I love that. I'm glad. And I think it's important that we talk about sex with our kids, that the conversation that matures as they mature, it starts very young. It starts with, you know, naming their, you know, genitals, penis, and vulva, and it just matures as they mature. And the most important thing you can do for your kiddos is to be sure that you're the trusted adult they can talk to. If they have questions, if they have you know, concerns that you're having a conversation that's so regular and so you know, it has such ease to it that they will continue to use you to help them make healthy decisions until they are adults and maybe even afterwards. But we get very caught up on the idea. Let me explain it this way. If you really thought about it, if you really thought about your goals for your kids and you could try to take the weirdness and the shame around what you felt, our goals for our kids really are that they have healthy, pleasurable sex. That really is our goal. And so helping them figure that out is going to mean being okay with their exploration and being okay when they get hurt. Ooh, that's always a hard one. You know, the Uh pain. It's like as a parent, you're always trying to. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) you're trying to keep them from pain when in reality, that's how they learn, right? We want them to do dangerous things carefully. And so sex can be one of those dangerous things. But if they don't have the support system and education, they're going to do dangerous things dangerously. Yeah. I mean, I don't think that would. I don't know that we've ever talked about sex goals for our kids. It's not really something you can oh, put really? on the, on the kitchen. On the wall in the, the kitchen. <laughs> yeah. I definitely Let's think that. It. I think that for our daughter a lot just because uh-huh. of the idea that it was so opposite for me. You know, it was uh-huh. like. Oh, just because we waited this long doesn't mean that I felt healthy in my brain because I didn't. That's right. Had all the shame and horrible things, or that it was necessarily pleasurable because I had no idea how to say what I wanted and needed, you know? So I definitely think of it in the opposite, like that I really want for her, you know? I had a conversation with two friends, which is just interesting because I'm hearing 
Andre and Celeste, your 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 experience. For the guys in this conversation, I feel like we had a different experience in the context of that culture. Like we probably pushed the envelope more so than women did, I think, in that era. And then, so anyway, I was having this conversation with these two guys and they were sharing their, basically like that they were sexually active before marriage. And, and I was talking to them about how are they educating their kids. And they're like, oh, we're for sure telling them they should never have sex before marriage. And I was like, how can you do that? It was this whole conversation, like this reverse scenario, because they did whatever they wanted. And now they're like, I don't trust any guy. I know what I was thinking. I know what I did. I know, you know. Well, maybe Uh because also they recognize that truly it wasn't healthy or pleasurable for them. For them. Well, for them, it was pleasurable for for their partner. Yeah, for sure. Specifically, especially probably healthy, like emotionally uh-huh. and all of that, too. Right. So it was just this weird conversation. I And I don't think there's many guys talking about it as much, maybe uh-huh. in a real honest tone. It's really interesting that you bring this up because, first of all, we don't give men permission to talk about this. We tell them they need to be, you know, all this toxic masculinity. They need to be, you know, sexual and dominant and take care of things and be protectors and we don't we don't allow you to have conversations that are are softer or instead of for example this conversation you're having with your guy friends you know they're saying essentially i don't want my kid to be a douchebag like I, that's exactly it that yeah, exactly. right and and so they're saying you need to wait until marriage instead of saying maybe i need to teach my kid to be less of a douchebag than i was <laughs> Exactly. Right. Yes, but they just minimized it. They well, minimized it so much. Yeah. Well, yeah. And and then that's again, that's like focused just straight back to the behavior versus exactly. the other parts of the sexual ethic that Celeste just taught us all about. And I feel like I'm being hard on your guy friends, but I'm I really want to say that like we don't give men permission to change course right to do differently with their sons or to admit like oh yeah i didn't i didn't have sex education i didn't know what i was doing with my girlfriends or my guy friend my boyfriends and so you know i'm instead of admitting that i'm just gonna you know not talk about it and hope for the best for my kid through restriction which won't you know still won't if even if you know, a guy waits until the marriage. It doesn't mean that he's now all of a sudden a good lover or good at sex or good at communicating about sex. It just means that they're doing, they're learning all this now in a marriage situation. I know back in the beginning, you kind of talked about how shame and maybe a little trauma and things showed up for you and how it showed up in painful sex for you. Yeah. What are some ways that you've also seen shame show up uh, with either your clients or, you know, people you've been talking to sexually? And like, how would somebody know if they're listening today and just like wondering if that's a problem or if that's, how would somebody feel or know if that's the situation that's causing them to have sexual problems? Yeah. Let's talk a little bit first about sexual shame. Dr. Tina Schirmer-Sellers has a a great manuscript book that talks about the origins of sexual shame and how we feel like it is one of the original ways in which children experience shame. So at 12 to 18 months, you know, kids are reaching for their genitals typically. And that's the first time that a kid will experience a parent's shame around their behavior. 
So it's, you know, oh, don't touch that. That's dirty. You know, it's a redirection based in shame. So shame starts early. Sexual shame starts very early. And that's why a lot of kids hide masturbation. Because even if nobody's ever said to a five-year-old, don't touch your clitoris or don't touch your penis in that way, something within them is, you know, conditioned to hide self-exploration in that way, right? And so sexual shame starts very early and it is impactful in a lot of different ways once you do start experiencing sex. So like in adulthood or in a marriage situation or, or a dating, whatever relationship, when you're having sex, it can come up like discussed with your own genitals or discussed with semen or ejaculate or your own sexual fluids, or it can turn into low libido or low arousal. Um, that's very, very common. It can turn into sexual pain. It can turn into disassociation, meaning I'm having sex, but my brain is outside of me because that's a lot of what we do in purity culture is, you know, growing up this is for men and women. If you're trying to get out of that feeling of arousal, you disassociate from your body or like you shut things down, you know, so shame can show up in adulthood and it can be a lot of different things. Low arousal is one that comes up a lot because you have shut arousal down. That's your body's response to trauma because you've been told that sex is dangerous your whole life. Sex is dangerous. You're going to get pregnant. You're going to get an STI. You're going to go to hell. You're going to be unwanted. You're going to be unlovable. And so your body just holds on to that message and, and does the only thing your body is intended to do, and that is to keep you safe. And so in a sexual experience, if you your body has read the message its whole entire life that sex is dangerous, it's going to go into fight or flight, shut down any non-essential systems, and arousal is the first thing to go because it's not essential, right? And so shame shows up in a lot of different ways, and it's very nuanced, and it's complex, and we typically don't even think about it because you know we have these society narratives that women should experience the libido, but if environmentally women had the same experience as men growing up, maybe we wouldn't have as more as much low libido as men do. We don't know. It can it might be an incredibly contextual environmental. So anyway, shame shows up in a lot of different ways. And so if you are experiencing any of those things like low libido or disgust with your body or your genitals or disassociation, being in a sexual experience but your head being elsewhere, it might be time to start to do some deconstruction. Yeah. And so that you would recommend some kind of a sex therapist, sexologist kind of point at that point, right? To help work through those things. Yeah. I always say that you can figure this stuff out. A provider just helps you do it faster. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 Well, let's shift a little bit. We kind of, you had alluded to that idea about the responsibility being the biggest obstacle to arousal. And Obviously, I think a lot of people listening probably realize that one of the biggest responsibilities and and obstacles to sex is uh, if they've had children and mm-hmm. having kids around or in the house or whatever. So I guess there are a lot of stages kind of, you know, after kids or having kids that cause problems with sex. And what advice maybe could you help with people in the different stages like that are just having that obstacle problem, you know, mm-hmm. with that over responsibility thing? How could you help our listeners in that area? Yeah. 
it's so common. So if you're listening to this and you're like, yeah, that's me, know that you're not alone. That mm. it's it's so many people experience this. And it's not really gendered. Like we, you know, I hate the book or the idea that like men are from Mars, men are from Venus. Like we're just not that different. We just aren't. And so responsibility kills sex drive or arousal for penis owners, vulva owners. And it is one of those things that we have to navigate over and over throughout our lives. Like when you're having kids, typically, you know, responsibility goes up and sex drive goes down. So one of the things that people often say when they come into the practice is, I wish we sex was quote unquote spontaneous, like it was when we were first together. And I just like to reframe this idea that you ever had spontaneous sex (laughs) because spontaneous, (laughs) spontaneous sex would be like, I'm walking down the sidewalk and all of a sudden (laughs) spontaneously having sex with somebody. Right. Oh, that's so funny. We just like romanticize this idea of spontaneity at our detriment. So when you were first together, you know, okay, we're dating or whatever. We're first married, whatever, you know, maybe I know that I'm going to go over to my boyfriend's house on Thursday. And so I'm going to, you know, put my cue, whatever on and shave my legs. And, you know, I'm going to prepare a little bit because I know that we're probably going to have sex. Right. And then I go over there and we're playing Yahtzee. And all of a sudden we quote unquote spontaneously are having sex, but I have been thinking about it. And since Tuesday, (laughs) yes. And I got cute for this and I shaved my lady bits for this. I used a sponge as Elaine would say. I used what (laughs) he was sponge worthy for the fine filled pants. So the idea that things happen spontaneously is not exactly accurate. I, I do think it is funny, though, to use the word Yahtzee as a spontaneous uh, potential sex. Oh, uh, my gosh. <laughs> You're ridiculous. Yahtzee. Is that your new initiation word? Yes, yes I will use that. I will use that. <laughs> initiation <laughs> word. If you yell Yahtzee, no. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I totally cut you off. I just thought that was funny. Keep okay, going, please. Keep going because you're right. No, you're it's it's like a false, it really is a false kind of idea, the spontaneity. Right. Thing. You were prepared for something you to were, happen. You were anticipating, anticipating it. You know? Yeah. Mm. yeah. You were anticipating it and excited about it. And you probably had less bills to pay and no kids. Fully. Exactly. So you have this you know, idea of novelty, which fuels arousal. So novelty is high because we're first together. We're first learning about each other and responsibilities are low um, because you just have less going on in your life. And so sex seemed easier. And so we identify this as spontaneous, but in reality, we had the time and, and bandwidth to think about it and to anticipate it. Right. So I bring that up because in our world today, when things are really responsible, you have all these bills, you have contracts, you have your new business, you're trying to get funders, all this jazz. It is important to make sex intentional. And I use the word intentional sexuality because I don't like the word scheduled. (laughs) I agree. People have a visceral reaction to scheduling. (laughs) Yes. Yes, I definitely do. Yeah. And I don't mean, okay, every Tuesday you're going to bang it out at 930. Not at all what I mean. (laughs) What I mean is that you are more intentional about 
negotiating sex. So on Sunday, you're like looking at your week together, doing the business of marriage like you already do. And you're saying like, hey, listen, I'm off work on Thursday. Um, you're, you know, off work on Thursday during lunch. Like, can we carve out this time to get sensual, get sexual, whatever that may mean for that moment, right? And so that's intentional sexuality. That's, you know, making it a priority so that you can anticipate it and so that you can arrange your responsibilities around it and you can show up in your full sexual selves instead of like trying to eke it out at 9.30 at night and everybody's tired and you're afraid a kid's going to run down the hall and open the door and see you in doggy style because that's not a real thing. <laughs> wow. She just said all the things that we think. Yeah. <laughs> it's my job. <laughs> I think that's real. I, I think that's so good. Okay, we got one last question, oh, I think, because we've been yeah. using a lot of her time. I know, but I might have one. I, you could, you do one, and then I have one. There you go. Oh, okay. okay, let's do it. Okay. Let's do it. All right, so <laughs> I was also thinking about you being a sexologist and studying all this and kind of seeing everything pretty now and trendy and all those things. Also, So huh. what current trends are you seeing in culture right now about sex and uh, sexuality that is really encouraging? And then what do you see that might cause you some discouragement or like this might not be very healthy? And then also just even in the time zone that we're in now, like COVID and all of that, what are you seeing currently right now? Well, let's start with a positive. I see us moving and progressing towards a world in which we are far more accepting of all different types of sexuality. I'm I'm excited for my kids and I am very encouraged by the progress we've made in affirmation in that way. I would say thing that concerns me or trends that I maybe see that is is difficult, and this has been for a while, not particularly this year or anything like that, but that our ability to give our kids trauma-informed, pleasure-focused, comprehensive, LGBTQIA-friendly sex education, the speed in which we are disseminating that information is so slow compared to the speed in which they can get porn and media sex. Interesting. Yeah. That is really concerning to me because porn becomes not a, necessarily a problem when you've already given a kid the tools to understand their body and understand what's going on and what's not going on in porn. So when they their first digestion of it, which every kid will probably digest porn at some point, their first digestion of it comes through a lens of education that they already have. And so they know that a lot of what they're seeing is performative and not real and not a real expectation for their own sex life. Yeah. So basically is like they don't have that sexual ethic first. That's right. That's yeah. right. And isn't it true? Isn't the porn number like crazy? Like the first porn age is usually like eight or something. Isn't that? Yeah. It keeps getting lower and lower. Yeah. 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 It just reinforces like how important it is to start so early. Yeah. with kids like really early and continue the conversation developmentally all the way, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was thinking back to how we started this whole conversation, you sharing your story about your first year of marriage and all that. And 
I was thinking if I were married to you, obviously I'm not married to you, but if I were married to you and then this, this was part of our story and then you became a sexologist and then you become literally an expert on sex. We're so lucky, isn't he? Uh, that's ah! what I, well, so, okay. So I have two, I, I was, I was thinking about this and I was like, or what? there's two sides to me on this. I'm like, on oh. one hand, maybe the sex is amazing. I'm so lucky, that kind of thing. But the reality is for me, I'm like, I have a feeling it's not always perfect still, right? It, it, it can't be like it. This is like a, it is a never ending journey of for Andre and I of learning each other because we keep changing, right? I don't know what the question is. I'm just throwing this out. Jeff, there. are you asking? No, not like that. I'm just like, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Hey, now, hey, now. I know. I always say you can ask about sex in my business, but not my business. I'm just I, love it. Good question. <laughs> I am a product of my own education, right? I am a firm believer that you continue to work on your sex life. And I am no different than anybody else, right? In fact, it's sometimes hard for me to separate, right? When I have my own life, my own pleasure and my own sensuality, and like I'm doing data sets in my head, you know, different sexual data that I know, that's really not helpful. And that's really, you know, tends to lean towards that disassociative responsibility. And so, yes, I absolutely work on my sex life just like I ask other people to. And it would be unethical of me not to as a provider. And so, you know, I have my own set of things that I work on with my partner that just like I ask other people to work on with theirs. It's it's just the idea that somehow you reach this level of, you know, superiority or like somehow because I study sex, that doesn't mean I don't have to work on it is just bananas to me. It's bananas. I think that's so good to hear. Well, also, I mean, I feel like it's like as soon as you feel kind of great and things are going good, all of a sudden <laughs> I'm like, wait, I think I'm perimenopausal now and now my hormones are changing or, or you know. Right. You're uh, changing consistently. Yeah, yeah, like your body changes, mm-hmm. the environment yeah. changes, uh, your yeah. kids change in a different phase where now they're staying up late with you every night and yeah, you're looking at, at and you're Come looking on. at each other like, what happened? <laughs> into our nighttime, you know? So yeah. it's like all these things continue to happen and change. And, you know, even though you have all the education, like I know a lot about perimenopause, but there's a whole different feeling when you experience it. Mm-hmm. Right. And then mm-hmm. learning your own body and how that's different or how that feels. And so I think everybody has those things that we're all having to continue to learn. And that's okay. That's right, Andre. It's totally true. Well, and that's the point, right? Is that we are learning how to be resilient, sexually resilient throughout the course of our life. And that is the, you know, kind of the objective of having a great sex life is to be resilient and to negotiate well as life changes and your body changes. Yeah. Good point, Andre. Thank you so much. This conversation. Celeste, can we be best friends? Let's be best friends. (laughs) And now it's time for the breakdown. Yes. I just want to say this because we can talk about it, but I feel like we need to talk about it. Like not on the air together, but we need to, you know. Yes. I agree. Have a conversation. There's some things in here that I feel like I want to talk to you about. Yeah. 
Which, well, if you listened, chances are there's some things you might want to talk about with your partner also. Yes. Can we just talk about how our whole lives we've not had, like what she talked about, like no pleasure education? I thought that was so interesting. Like we talk about sex ed a lot and learning and learning about it and teaching our kids about it. But this idea of like pleasure education, I really like it. I really like that concept. And I'm going to research some more on that. That's really interesting. There is like so many terms used that we don't, I don't, it's maybe not like we've in heard our common it. language yeah, maybe, that we say every day. Yeah. Maybe we've heard someone say it, but it's not, yeah, you're right. It's like not part of our lingo. Sex is negotiation, sexual resiliency, sexual ethic, intentional sexuality, all these terms. I'm like, yeah, this is good stuff to think about and talk about. Mm-hmm. I think I love, she took our chapter to like a whole new level. Yeah. Like ours was like a step one. We're 101. We're like the 101. She's Maybe. the two to Fourth, three to four. Masters, doctors. Masters. Okay. This phrase, this is what we need to talk about, but we're not going to talk about it on the air, but I'm going to bring it up on the air. Oh my gosh. Is this phrase that I want to reiterate it because it's something we should all share with our partner. My dream sexual experience would feel like what yeah right and I, and that goes with that whole idea about two different people having two different wants and desires and needing to know more about what we feel that we want during sex and not just like the actions and behaviors and positions yeah and i think you know i i feel like even in a given month you might answer that question differently Depending yeah, on where change. you're at, you might be exactly. on vacation or you're mm. at home or you're on a date night or what it like, depending on what's going on, that's something. Right. So then that's part of like what she was saying, like the negotiation, that's part of that, like every day, every week, every sexual encounter, like she's, she made it very much seem like this is a constant, constant discussion. Yeah. I think that gave me a question I could ask you. Okay. Like, Not on the air. I mean, like... (laughs) But regularly, you're saying. Or instead of saying, like, the dream, it could be, like, tonight's sexual... What do you want to feel? Right. I I like that idea. That's really interesting. Wow. And then there was a lot with the kid... (laughs) (laughs) I'm moving on. Uh, There was a lot with the kid thing. I mean, I think that is a very stretching perspective. I don't know if everybody's thinking in that way right now. Everyone won't agree with that. I don't think all people will think the same, but there is something so valuable with that sexual ethic idea that has values, sexual education, and intuition all involved in helping make healthy choices. Yeah, that's really good. But I think... Let's not even think that about a sex. I mean, if you think that with our kids, we call that ethics in any other way, right? Like in in your sports and what you do every day and how you act and treat people at school. We say we want it to be value-based. We want it to be educated. We want you to have intuition, to know how people are feeling and thinking and how you're feeling and thinking, you know? So we do this in a lot of other ways. And I think we hold back and don't do it on the sexual side. So I'm pushing. I'm pushing you guys. I'm pushing listeners. I'm pushing myself that I really want to kind of work on this more with the kids. Yahtzee. 
Oh, Lord, have mercy. All right. So you all know where to find Celeste Holbrook. It is in our show notes, but her website, drcelesteholbrook.com. She does a lot of consults. She's also associated with this uh, fun toy store, Velvet Box, which is in her area. So look her up, look up her stuff, and maybe get yourself a fun toy while you're at it. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. And that's another episode of Love Love or Work. Work. This episode was recorded by Matt Owen for Soul Graffiti Productions.